Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Religion. I'm your co-host, Hilary Kale. As patterns of religiosity have changed in the United States, chaplains have come to occupy an increasingly important place in our public institutions, including prisons, hospitals, and of course, the military. In her newest book, A Ministry of Presence, Chaplaincy, Spiritual Care, and the Law, Professor Winifred Fowlers-Sullivan offers a comprehensive study of contemporary chaplaincy, in particular how it sits at the intersection of law, government regulation, and spiritual care. She shows how much this ubiquitous but often invisible institution can tell us about religion in the U.S. today, and moreover, the role that law plays in structuring American ideas about and the experience of religion. I'm happy to welcome her to discuss this in detail. Hello and welcome. Hi, Hillary. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, we are glad to have you. And I want to begin our discussion, as we often do on NBIR, with asking you a really broad question. How did you come to study religion and the intersection of law and religion? Well, that's it's kind of, uh, it happened by chance in a sense. I've always been interested in religion. I grew up in Uganda, in East Africa, where my father was an anthropologist working in uh, Kampala at that time. And uh, he was very interested in religion, and I think I uh, learned from him to be interested in religion. After I had worked a bit after college, I, like many of my generation, went to law school uh, for lack of anything else to do. And Many of my generation, too, I should say. <laughs> well, in the United States, of course, uh, law is declining somewhat as a, uh, a vocation. But um, in any event, uh, during law school, I... I wrote a paper on the Yoder case, which is a, a very important free exercise case. Um, and that came back to me later because the teacher with this is a story about how wonderful it is to have a good mentor. So I quit practicing law because my law firm would not let me work part time while I had young kids. And my law professor for whom I'd written that paper uh, wrote to me and asked me about contributing to a volume a chapter on law and religion. And that's the first time I began to put together those two parts of my life. So it was it was the result of um, a good teachers and good mentoring that these things came together and eventually led to where I am now. Well, I, re- I really like stories like that. It makes me feel like what we do on a daily basis in universities has some sort of outcome, potentially. I mean, you never know. And maybe for a long time, I think it's important to remember that you, you don't see the effect of your teaching, good teaching, immediately, necessarily. And everybody should understand that. Sometimes it takes a while to percolate. (laughs) So what drew your attention to chaplaincy then? Well, that also is a bit of a happenstance. Um, Um, I keep my eye out for new cases um, that treat religion, uh, not just Supreme Court cases, but but cases at every level. And... um, I was attracted by this case because, and I really hadn't paid any attention to chaplaincy per se before this. I knew there were chaplains, um, but it was this uh, particular lawsuit 
concerning uh, VA chaplaincies uh, that drew my attention to chaplains in particular and, and how their role is changing today. And which case is that that you're referring to, the Katkoff case? The Veterans Administration. So this uh, is a case concerning, these are not well-known cases by their title, but this is a case concerning the administration of spiritual care in, in veterans hospitals in the U.S. I see. So this came across your desk and then Nicholson. you started... Yeah. Nicholson. Yeah. yeah. And so this came across your desk and you started thinking about how this institution is actually rather ubiquitous, as you point out in the book. Well, actually, it wasn't the institution at first that interested me. It, it was the fact that the court um, decided that there was no constitutional problem with having um, the Veterans Administration hospitals uh, actually assess every incoming patient as to their spiritual health and then prescribing spiritual cures for them. This really startled me. And particularly, I was startled by the the ease with which the judges saw this as um, constitutionally unproblematic. In other words, they had taken in through the media the notion that spiritual health was important to good health care, and they didn't see it as the kind of sectarian religion that the Establishment Clause is designed to protect against. I definitely want to get back both to constitutional law, but also to this question about uh, spiritual health being considered natural in some sense to humans. Um, but before we do that, because as you note in the book, it could be that uh, your readers and our listeners, they've certainly heard of chaplains, but it could be that they're actually not all that aware of what chaplains do. So maybe before we move further into the questions that are really at the heart of the book, we can just step back and ask, what do what do chaplains do? What is What does a typical chaplain do? They're obviously pretty diverse. Who are they talking to? Where are they working? So I do think it's helpful to have a bit of a historical perspective. I, I won't uh, I won't do two thousand years, but uh, so chaplains originated in the Latin West in uh, Europe in the Christian Empire, um, the Frank, Frank Christian empires when. Christian soldiers, when there came to be Christians who were soldiers in the Roman army and they needed care in a sense, but also armies came to see what they were doing as in some sense implicating Christian doctrine. And so those are the first chaplains that are, that we know about. But over the course of um, the Middle Ages and the early modern period, chaplains came to be, to serve in households, aristocratic households, in hospitals, in other kinds of institutions. And there already you see that they are priests and and eventually ministers, Protestant ministers as well, instead of working in the in the in a context of a church congregation or even in a cathedral staff, they're working in secular institutions. Um, and so they're bringing the church, if you like, into secular and acting as a bridge between the developing secular institutions of what would become the new modern nation states and providing a bridge between the church and those new secular institutions. Um, today, though, in the United States, this role has become radically multi-faith, as you might say, in an, a U.S. sense. So they're no longer only Christians. They're no, no longer even 
representatives or practitioners of world religions or even well-established religious communities. Uh, there are now humanist chaplains and chaplains, but all of these chaplains serve everybody today. They understand their role to be, whether they're in a hospital, whether they're in an airport, uh, whether they're in a prison, to be ministering to to every person and to have an obligation uh, to welcome all comers with the understanding that everybody is, in a sense, uh, spiritual. Everyone, the spirituality is a universal aspect of human nature and uh, that it's necessary to provide spiritual care um, in these various contexts that people find themselves. And are most chaplains still associated with Christian denominations? Or you said that there is, there is a variety of chaplains from different religions. One of the things you talk about in the book, though, is uh, the issue in terms of finding endorsing bodies. Um, are there groups that don't have chaplains or trying to get them have only more recently gotten chaplains? Sure, you can always tell that story of exclusion. I think that, and because, you know, by large, the majority of Americans are Christians, the majority of chaplains are Christians as well. For those chaplains who whose job requires uh, that you uh, have a recommendation from an endorsing organization, um, those organizations are predominantly Christian, although not exclusively. And it has been the case, unsurprisingly, that uh, minority traditions have had difficulty being recognized as endorsing bodies. But that isn't to say that still organizations like the Army, for example, have made an enormous effort to be inclusive. Um, I don't don't think you want to overstate the exclusion. The exclusion is there. That exclusion is there throughout U.S., history and, and is always the dark side of the American religious freedom story. And as you point out in the book, some groups that traditionally have not had chaplains in part because they didn't have recognizable endorsing bodies like the Latter-day Saints or Muslims in America have recently gotten chaplains within the army, correct? So, I mean, there is also a move towards um, incorporating yes. increasing numbers of... Yes, and religious organizations are finding ways to fit with the government bureaucratic requirements. I guess that'd be one way of saying it. Right, of course. The wars of the last, uh, you know, decade and a half have, of course, provided um, the need for increasing numbers of chaplains in the military, and that's one of the motivating factors for increasing representation of uh, minority traditions in, in at least the military chaplaincies. Yeah. One of the things that we've been both sort of darting around, but but maybe we can make more explicit, is this question about how culturally Americans have had this evolving sense of spirituality and how chaplaincy plays into that idea of this spiritual spirituality. Could you speak a little more about what spirituality means for Americans and I, I suppose also maybe for scholars? This, as you know, is a very complicated question. Um, <laughs> I think sometimes both for ordinary Americans and for scholars of American religion, spirituality seems like a thin kind of religion, a kind of um, new agey form of, you know, maybe consumerist religion. I think that's a mistake. I don't think that's how the word certainly is being used in legal context today. And I think it, belies also a longer history 
of American interest in alternative forms of spirituality. So that even Americans who have been conventional churchgoers over the course of American history have often been interested in other traditions and other spiritual traditions. And that so spirituality might, as I use it in this book, is intended to be a far more inclusive and neutral kind of term without any kind of judgment as to what the quality of uh, of this form of religious uh, participation in life. And I think that courts use the term, and I think our students do, I don't know if you find that true of your students in Canada, use spirituality as a sort of generally inclusive word, as a way of avoiding some of the negative associations with the word religion that has partly come out of the partisan politics of the last few decades. Mm. But they mean by that to gesture to a wide range of religious and spiritual practices, both uh, churchier ones and and ones that are less associated with conventional religious organizations. I really like that that term, churchier. <laughs> I think I'll have to work that into uh, my discussions with my students. Another term that, that you use at one point in the book that I just absolutely loved was the seductive scientism of chaplaincy, you know, making spirituality into something that can be uh, assessed, be uh, made rational or, or scientific. I wanted to ask you a bit more about that. So how is um, spiritual fitness assessed? You spend some time on, on that, especially in terms of the military. Yes. Yeah, so one of the practices that I discuss in this, in the book is the practice in the military Um, But it's not only in the military, also in hospitals and other social service contexts of trying to measure uh, a person's spiritual health. And as anyone who's read John Modern's book on 19th century secularism in America knows, this measuring is also an old story in the U.S. uh, And he traces, you know, the origin of spirituality back to phrenology and the practice of mapping onto models of the human head, mapping the location in the brain of certain kinds of uh, aspects of consciousness. So I think there already uh, in the 19th century and uh, people like William James and others, uh, psychologists were interested in trying to provide sort of empirical evidence and measure the presence of and the varieties of spiritual effects, spiritual practices, spiritual experiences. What has happened um, in the, that I talk about in the book is that as um, computers have given these efforts uh, a new kind of sort of pseudo-scientistic sort of empiricism so that in, in the Veterans Administration at various times, in their VA hospitals, also in the military, um, computerized surveys or tests of people's spiritual health um, are being given, uh, which allows uh, the, the organization or the institution to, to actually compute a number for your spiritual health. And, uh, and these assessment tools range from, if you'll, I'll use the word again, the churchier end of the spectrum, which asks questions like how often you go to church and how often you pray to much vaguer questions about how you think about the meaning of life or... um, Does your life have meaning? Yes, exactly. Um, 
And these these assessment tools, yes, are designed for the military to measure whether you are fit to be a soldier. Did you find that chaplains are also using these kinds of assessment techniques? Yes, and so chaplains would be the administrators of these te- of these tools, at least in hospitals and in the military, and on other, on other places too, yes. How are chaplains being trained and given credentials? Uh, you spend a fair amount of time on that in the book because it's not actually as simple as we might think, and there are legal debates that play into this question about credentials. Right, so one of the ways in my book which my book is a little different than some other studies of chaplaincy, is that most people who study chaplains study them in a particular institution. So you have a specialized group of sociologists and anthropologists who study chaplains in hospitals, who study chaplains in prisons, who study chaplains in the military. Um, And there are good reasons to specialize because these are distinct institutions with distinct histories, and the chaplaincies in each one have their own Uh, distinct histories as well. Um, But what I tried to do here was to look across all these um, sites for the work of the chaplain and to see the ways in which um, the work of the chaplain was becoming standardized and and homogenized, I would say. And, uh, And I was also interested, of course, in how the work of chaplains is regulated. Um, regulated as work. That is, all work in the United States is regulated in various ways. People are licensed. They're bound by certain kinds of uh, labor laws, employment practices, etc. And one of the things I found was that looking across these various domains in which chaplains work, uh, you find that almost always there are three credentials that are required. And In the book, I trace the ways in which each of those credentials is also regulated by the government. And so that this is a way of seeing how the practice of chaplains um, is the product of uh, a a kind of public-private partnership uh, that regulates and uh, shapes uh, the nature of their ministry. Uh, I think this is surprising to many Americans because Americans think of, the, I think most Americans, if they thought about it, would think that chaplains are kind of imported from a law-free zone into an institution. And that in that law-free zone, they're formed as religious people and as religious leaders. And then they come and they work in the institution. And that, in some ways, would describe an older picture. And there are still some chaplains who would fit that uh, description a little better, although there is no law-free zone, uh, but uh, a freer, a law-freer zone. But to, but most chaplains today, and this is what I wanted to, to describe in this book, is how the work of chaplains uh, is becoming patterned in part through um, the standardization produced by law. So the three credentials are the Master of Divinity degree, um, CPE credits, uh, which is um, an internship in pastoral uh, care. And the third one is the ecclesiastical endorsement. We talked a little about the, the endorsement already, but what do these programs in terms of MDivs and the clinical pastoral, what are chaplains learning there? How are they being regulated? So I think that if you look at, it's different in each case. I mean, 
CPE or clinical pastoral education in a way is the quintessential chaplaincy training program in the U.S. and has been going on and in Canada as well for, for, for about a century. Um, and this was a form of chaplaincy training that was invented for hospitals and was in, invented in Boston and was intended to teach Protestant ministers uh, about how to work in a modern high-tech hospital, uh, sort of give them the experience of what the high-tech hospital was becoming and train them to work with patients in that setting. And that has gradually expanded so that today anyone who works in a hospital as a chaplain from any religious tradition is required to have CPE credits and the CPE is specifically understood to be nonspecific in its religious practice. So the, the CPE practice is understood as sitting with a patient and any kind of particularist religious practice is supposed to come from the patient, not from the chaplain. In other words, the chaplain does not initiate a particular uh, religious particularist religious practice, but allow that to be initiated by the patient. Um, And so it's understood to be very specifically non-impositional. So so you see there already, uh, even though this uh, finds its origins in mainstream liberal Protestantism, it has the seeds there of this kind of inclusive, non-impositional, non-specific spiritual practice, spiritual care, if you like. The MDiv is a slightly different story. The MDiv, uh, the Master of Divinity degree, is quite a recent degree. And in fact, um, most ministers in the United States have not had higher education degrees. And they probably, that would be true today if you could actually count them up. Um, In other words, for many churches in the United States, uh, a kind of charismatic understanding of religious leadership would be the credential. The credential would be that you, your call and the evidence of your call. Uh, the credential would not be that you had university degrees and courses. Uh, but gradually, partly because the credentialing more generally has become standardized in the U.S., you see the Master of Divinity degree, degree becoming the standard degree so that it's now offered not only by liberal Protestant seminaries, but also across the Christian spectrum, and non-Christian seminaries offer the degree as well. So it's a way of showing that you have the professional credential, but again, it's also becoming more nonspecific, like CPE, so that um, there are Masters of Divinity programs which don't require you to have any confessional allegiance at all. And the students who enter these programs understand themselves to be preparing themselves to do professional spiritual care without a specific religious identity. Are there entire programs? I don't think you discussed this in the book. I'm just curious. Are there entire programs that are dedicated to to that sort of MDiv that where it is understood that all of the students coming in would not have a specific? So. Um, the, you know, broadly speaking, the the small L liberal seminaries or divinity schools like Harvard and Claremont in California have a, are not restricted to Christian uh, 
students, um, but invites students from a broad range of religious and spiritual locations into the ministry programs. You note a case in the book that I, of course, hadn't heard of, but a small uh, seminary, Tyndale College or seminary anyway, in Texas, and the, the legal dispute about whether it should be or shouldn't be credentialed in Tyndale's response was exactly what you're talking about, that, that actually religious authority is a charismatic authority, we could say, and the idea of getting credentialing from the state for them went against how they understood Christian ministry to be perpetuated. Yes, uh, Tyndale's a Bible college in Bible Texas, college. and that case actually comes up. This is a different kind of, it wouldn't be credentialing, it'd be, I'm sorry to be a little bit like a lawyer here for a minute. No, that's no, that's good. Accreditation. That's accreditation. accreditation. Uh, so one of the points I make about in the book about the way in which uh, the federal government regulates religion in this country, which is surprising to people, is that academic degrees are... You can only be uh, given by institutions that are licensed by the state. And every state in the union uh, has this law. In other words, if you want to grant a degree, uh, an academic degree, uh, a master's or a, a PhD or a bachelor's degree, you have to be late licensed by the, by the state. And that's because this is understood that you're holding yourself out as somebody who is qualified professionally, and the state understands itself to have an interest in protecting the public from fraud, so that you wouldn't want someone to have an MD that was not uh, licensed by this from an institution that wasn't licensed by the state, or maybe you would. Some people would think would like to see this uh, deregulated, but anyway, many people would agree that the state should uh, license academic degrees. Tyndale made the argument that. Uh, under the First Amendment, it had a right to grant bachelor's and master's degrees, even though it was not licensed by the state. And that was because of its rights and constitutional rights to the free exercise of religion. Yes. So if I remember, Tyndale won the case, correct? Yes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Texas is an exception. So every other state in the union, you, you could be a Bible college, you just couldn't issue degrees. Right. It's, it's the academic degrees that are here uh, licensed by the state. Right. And that's that question of accreditation, as, yes. as you were just saying. In uh, constitutional law, what are the major debates then regarding religion in the U.S., but, but specifically how chaplaincy factors into to these debates about constitutional law? You mentioned Nicholson earlier in our conversation. What other cases also caught your attention? Doctrinally, under the uh, First Amendment of the United States Constitution, it would be understood that the Establishment Clause, the No Establishment Clause, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, that that prohibits government, that would include the federal government now, as well as the state and local governments, from paying for worship. So for paying or for coercively proselytizing. So those would be understood to be activities prohibited to government by uh, by the United States Constitution. At first blush, it would seem that having the government hire chaplains, uh, hire ministers and priests and rabbis to perform worship, which is what they do, um, 
is unconstitutional. He just patently unconstitutional. So the puzzle is how has it come to be that the United States government and, and the state and local governments are able to hire chaplains when the Constitution seems to prohibit that? And the courts have answered that in several ways uh, and in several different contexts. So the only time that the United States Supreme Court has spoken to this issue, it considered legislative chaplaincies. So in the United States, and this is unusual, I think, for um, Canadians, but perhaps not. In the United States, legislatures, and this would include the Congress of the United States as well as state legislatures and local municipal authorities, um, often hire chaplains to offer prayers at the beginning of every session. Um, So you see right there, this is the government is hiring a minister or a priest or a rabbi to deliver a prayer, to worship, in effect. Um, The Supreme Court said that that is permissible because the first Congress had such a chaplain. It's what you might say, it's called, it's grandfathered. By historical practice, it is constitutionalized. Um, But it's so important to realize that one of the reasons why um, the legislative chaplain was understood to be more than simply um, a, you know, praying on behalf of the government is because many legislators then, and some still do, uh, travel to the Capitol for the purposes of working on uh, legislation, and they're away from their homes. This is the distinctive mark of the chaplain, that the chaplain ministers to someone who is not home where they can go to their home congregation. And so the first congressman who traveled to Washington um, lived in rooming houses. They weren't at home. And so chaplains were understood to be delivering spiritual or pastoral care to them in an individual sense, as well as doing the more ceremonial work of opening legislative sessions with prayers. Uh, So that's the one time the United States Supreme Court has spoken. In the case of Marsh, this involved uh, a Nebraska chaplain. Uh, Lower courts have uh, also uh, considered the constitutionality of chaplains. And what has come to be the doctrine is that both military chaplains, but other kinds of chaplains as well, are necessary because Americans are constitutionally uh, entitled to a free market in religion, uh, that that's what the free exercise clause of the Constitution grants. And if you are in the military, in prison, away from home on government business, the government is understood then to not just be permitted, but actually to be obliged to provide you with an opportunity for you to exercise your free exercise of religion. Again, as you point out in the book, this obviously has ramifications in terms of the military, where you have all these Americans who are overseas and in environments where it's understood that spiritual care would be even more necessary, perhaps. Right, sure. The, the arguments for a, for a military chaplaincy are manifold and complex because military chaplains uh, do a range of, of things. They minister to individual soldiers so that in that sense, they're replacing the soldier's home minister, should the soldier have one. Um, but they are also um, 
providing more sort of communal spiritual care in the sense that uh, for those um, military uh, groups that are away from the United States. But chaplains exist on home bases as well today. So they're not only um, for deployments. Uh, Chaplains exist on bases in the United States as well. So a case that we mentioned earlier but we didn't talk about was the Katkoff case, which was a case brought before the courts by two law students at the time about the unconstitutionality yes. yeah, of um, uh, military chaplains. And you note in the book that it actually, uh, although the case didn't have a lot of legal legs, it, it did make the military rethink in certain ways how chaplaincy functioned in the military. How does it look different today, chaplaincy in the military, than how it used to look? So the, the motto of the military chaplaincy in the U.S. is for God and country. You have a sense there of something that might look more to scholars like civil religion um, in the sense that uh, chaplains were understood to, you know, be on the side of the uh, American military venture and to be blessing it in some sense. Um, and that seemed in part one of the reasons that chaplains were um, were recognized as necessary when these two law students brought the lawsuit uh, ch- in the early 80s challenging um, the uh, constitutionality of the military chaplaincy, uh, the U.S. military, who, which was then sort of recovering from the Vietnam War, um, undertook a massive kind of reexamination of their chaplaincy and in the process um, reoriented its purpose toward uh, this purpose that we mentioned earlier, that is the purpose of uh, ministering to uh, soldiers who are away from home. So that in the process of articulating a defense to this case, the military came in a sense to understand itself more in terms of this uh, obligation to provide an opportunity for soldiers uh, to exercise their constitutional rights. So it's not that the um, civil religion aspect or priestly aspect of the chaplaincy is entirely vanished, but the the explanation for the chaplaincy has shifted it as a result of that case toward the need for delivering pastoral care to to soldiers away from home. So far in our conversation, we haven't actually touched on the term Ministry of Presence, which is, of course, the title of the book. And you use that term because it's a term that that you heard a lot in Chaplin's own discourse. They use it a lot. So I was wondering if you could speak a bit to that. What does that term mean when they use it? How do you discuss it in the book? This is, a, I think, a, one of the most difficult parts of writing this book was trying to uh, describe for readers what chaplains mean by a ministry of presence. Uh, so let me say that uh, this term has become ubiquitous in the writing and the description by chaplains themselves about what they understand themselves to be doing. Uh, they describe their work most often as a ministry of presence. Uh, so, you know, even in the few years since I first did the research for this book, um, this practice is spreading and getting, the phenomenology of this practice is getting thicker and more complicated. So I'm 
um, I, I, I view what I wrote in the book as a, as a kind of tentative effort to describe what I saw then as an emergent practice, which I think is getting much thicker and more established now. Um, so in trying to trace the origins of this expression, a ministry of presence, I found that uh, almost everyone traces its origins to a French uh, mystical practice, which is seems odd for uh, an American religious practice. Um, but of course, presence in that tradition refers to Eucharistic presence, to the presence of uh, Jesus Christ in the elements of the um, celebration of the Mass. Um, and the, the practice in some French monastic traditions of focusing their own spiritual practice on the presence of Christ, not just in the Mass, but also uh, in, in, their, in their lives more generally. So you have this highly specific French mystical practice which doesn't look at all American in some ways, and yet it has come to serve as the description of a practice which is, again, getting back to the CPE, is non-impositional. In other words, it's, um, and I don't want to say passive in a weak sense, but it's a way of being present to, that's another way that um, ministers talk about this kind of work, uh, in which you sit with or... Um, move with or be with somebody in their life's journey. This is another way of talking about it. Uh, so you see a whole range, I think, in the way a ministry of presence is described from something that is quite thickly Christian uh, in a very specific theological sense that describes a very specific understanding um, about the way Jesus is present in the world in certain kinds of contexts and certain kinds of ways to um, a, a more universalized, generalized form of spiritual practice uh, in which it, you might even extend it to a presence that is limited in a sense simply to the presence of the chaplain in a particular context without any transcendent reference necessarily, but it could be or it couldn't be. So I think one of the reasons a ministry of presence has become so prevalent is because it it solves the problem of a religious multiplicity. It's a way of um, being inclusive of many different forms of um, religious ministry without getting tripped up with a, or without excluding anyone. Um, so presence is 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 also comes out of the. Uh, psychoanalytic tradition. Um, so you could see humanistic forms of presence. You could see even quite scientific ones in, in terms of uh, psychological studies that have been done about the value of sitting at someone's hospital bedside. Uh, all the way to this highly um, specific French mystical practice, if you see what I mean. I mean, one of the. Examples- I know you study French uh, French Catholic practice. I, uh, so you probably know something about this. Well, true, but not not mystical monastics. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, one one of the examples that I, I just thought was so wonderful because I've I've read Kafka's The Trial before, but I had never thought of the chaplain in that. And and I was just thinking of it. You you um, you noted in your introduction. I was just thinking of that as you were speaking because of talking about uh, a chaplain as 
with someone on their journey in some sense. And yet these are individuals who are very much tied to an institution. So there's a tension there uh, that when you leave the confines of this institution, you don't take the chaplain with you. Uh, the chaplain stays within the hospital or within the military. Is that a tension that you saw explored in the ways that chaplains thought about what they did? Well, yes, as you you note the, the chaplain in Kafka's a trial. Once I started working on this, of course, I, I saw that there were chaplains <laughs> everywhere. Um, well-known chaplain in Billy Budd as well, another uh, rather sinister character like the chaplain in Kafka. In, in both of those cases, well, in Billy Budd, the, the chaplain is represented as almost wholly captured by um, the the institution um, without any sympathy, it seems, for Billy Budd. Kafka's chaplain is a little more ambiguous so that Joseph K. feels as if he has been offered a kind of sympathy and then it's withdrawn, as you point out. Um, there is a tension in all chaplaincies, I think, in, its, in the chaplain's dual allegiance uh, to the institution that pays him, the host institution, if you like, and its purposes on the one hand, and um, the, well, there's actually sort of three points. Then to their, the chaplain's own religious community that trains him and to whom he is still in some ways indebted, and then to um, the client or the patient, the prisoner, the soldier. And uh, I think one of the reasons chaplains like to do this work is because they like um, being in this um, high-tension context. It's a context in which you can't uh, rely necessarily on uh, ready-made religious um, ways of ministry. Um, and I don't want to imply by that that uh, parish ministers don't also have to constantly uh, adapt and uh, address human needs, but there is a kind of um, high tension. And immediacy, maybe. Immediacy, yes. Um, and often with strangers. Um, I mean, the immediacy, of course, is provided partly by uh, the number of these situations, which are crisis situations. So, of course, people in hospitals who are severely ill or dying or being born, <laughs> um, people on the battlefield, people in prisons and other kinds of people in, in crisis situations. Um, but I think I'm veering off a little bit from your original question, which was about the chaplain's own tension um, and um, one, one of the chaplains I spoke to said to me that, that chaplaincy attracts misfits. And he said that, and he meant by that, he said that um, chaplains were people who don't like hierarchical authority. So they like operating between the institutions. In other words, they're not, you know, the bishop's not looking over their shoulder on the one hand, and they're somewhat apart from their institute, the institution they're working on. They're not a guard in a prison. They're the chaplain. Um, but that balance, I think, is not always easy to maintain, I guess I would say. And, um, and the tension is, is, is always present. Um, and, the, and, the, and the tension between the purposes. And not just in a prison or in the military, 
but even in hospitals. One of the best, if I might just tell you, the, one of the best books I read preparing uh, to write my book was a book by um, a chaplain uh, who is in the um, Church of England chaplain in the National Health System in England. And he describes how um, chaplains in uh, hospitals in England really changed their purpose during Tudor times when hospitals went from being a place where people were primarily understood to be in search of salvation to um, the a hospital in an early modern state, which is mainly interested in the health of their workers. And so the chaplain's job then shifts to one uh, in which um, he wants, he, on behalf of the institution, he wants the patient to get better so they can get back to work. And there is, a, that sense also is present um, in all modern chaplaincies, I think. I think that we probably don't have time to get into Foucault, but just to entice our listeners to read the book, there's also a really interesting uh, distinction uh, that you do draw with Foucault and sort of this question about governmentality that you were just alluding to, and, and governability, you could say, that you were just alluding to a moment ago. I did want to ask you a little about what you're working on next. In this book, you looked at a number of themes that I know you've been thinking about in some depth. Uh, are you still working on some of these questions, new questions? I've gotten um, interested in um, the corporate nature of religion. So and many people are interested in this today, but I've um, partly because of the decision in Hobby Lobby. Uh, so I guess I would say that right now I'm getting interested in the phenomenology of um, the religion as a corporate phenomenon in the U.S. Uh, so that's what I'm trying to figure out. What is the church in law in the United States? Just a small question, of course. Easily answerable, I'm sure. <laughs> well, thank you so much for sitting down with us and talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you.